Hey everyone, you're listening to On Their Behalf, formerly known as DNA, a true crime podcast. Please enjoy. Hey everybody, it's Devin the D. And Asia the A. And welcome to the final episode of season one. Woohoo! We made it, you guys. Oh my gosh, it's so crazy. This, I don't know, like I cannot believe that it's 15 episodes already. Like, I know. And that we're done with the first season. Like, we think about, like, how long ago we were I just know. brainstorming this. And yeah, it's still so, not that long ago, but it still, it feels like... It feels like, well, A, so much has happened in the world. True, yeah. We, so if you don't know, we started talking about this, what, in October of 2019, yeah. maybe? Because then I got that job that just, like, took up all my time, and I was like, I can't do it yet. Yeah. So it wasn't until... February, January, February. Yeah, January. January. I think we started to like really hit the ground running with like setting yeah. things up and you know yeah. doing like our first like yeah uh, meetings together. And then I think then we started trying to recording out airing schedule, yeah, and music and all this stuff, and like learning GarageBand and editing, which is like a whole nother a whole thing. thing that took about so, a month. But yeah, so like late yeah. January, early February to now. Just yeah. feels like a lifetime ago, but I know. it's just, but we, we love it. doing we it. it. It's so yeah. much fun. It's so much fun to do it with my best friend. And Aww. and we love telling the stories and hearing your reactions and your positive thoughts and your shock and horror the way that we feel. So thank you for being on this ride with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, I'm getting teary. Oh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, so we're going to kind of close out the season, uh, sort of the, the way that we started it. So, uh, Devin and I are going to tell this case together. We split the research. Um, and so this week, uh, Devin and I are going to tell you the life of the most prolific serial killer, Samuel Little. When you were researching, did you find this case like kind of difficult to wrap like your emotional mind around? Yes, absolutely. I I I can't really put my finger on why, but I know. it's so it's such a huge huge case that spans over decades. Um, so to kind of put all of it into perspective and, and kind of have one, one specific view or like opinion about it was really difficult. So like yeah. within writing what I, my side of it, cause you know, everybody knows we don't, I don't research what your side of what mm-hmm. you're doing. So it's like to, to put all of that into, you know, one thought or I usually I have a very strong opinion and I, and I run with it and like, that's it regardless. Yeah. But like this like was just so hard to yeah. emotionally get 
in like there's just like a disconnect some somehow yeah it's um, like and the, i don't know if so it's so much that it just is like feels almost impossible to like feel that much and like yeah it just even the way that like articles and everything and the way that we were probably going to have to tell this case just because it's so much is just it gets kind of like about the numbers yeah you know and it's very linear it's not yes i i don't and I, it's it's because of the way that this just unfolded, you know, and as we we learn, because a lot of the articles that I read are from 2018, 2019, like, mm-hmm. and it's just the, 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 the compilation of what they found out in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, like, I usually, we, we try to cover cases of, you know, minorities and, and uh, women of color or men of color and stuff like that. So usually we have a very clear opinion or idea about what, how race plays a role in it. Mm-hmm. And it was just really hard for me because, yeah. uh, you know, if, obviously if people don't know, Samuel Little is a black man. And it just, it was really hard to wrap my head around mm-hmm. it and and really have a like decide on where I stood in yeah. this case. Um, so I don't know if this for you, but I feel like that's going to unfold as you and I talk about it rather than me yeah. like already knowing have, it, going into it. I have, I feel like I have a lot of thoughts and also no thoughts. Yeah. So I'm interested. Oh, that's to, such like, a good way to put it. it. Cause that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> like, and I, it's it like, I don't, it's, overwhelming and so it feels exhausting to start and we've done 15 episodes and every episode (laughs) feels really hard so maybe we're burnt out a little yeah that could be it too but you know that doesn't take away from like what this right in the end you know what the result was but I, I get it like I have so many thoughts as I'm reading through and as I'm like writing down what I want to say about my research but then I also have no thoughts because it's also, um, I'm pro- this probably isn't the right word, but predictable. Does that it's, make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like every time I read something else, I'm like, well, of course. Right. You know, <laughs> like, well, uh, well, yeah. duh. You know, like yeah. that's how I feel. So it's, I'm almost like pushing that out of my mind because I'm just like, well, of course this is what happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, with all yeah. that, let's start. With all that, yeah, let's start. <laughs> um, so Samuel Little, Little was born on June 7th, 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia. He was actually born Samuel McDowell. Um, I'm not sure if that's... Like, I could not find an article that... The, I only had found one article that named him Samuel McDowell, so I'm not sure if McDowell was his mother's last name. Mm. And uh, then he assumed another name later on in life. But he was born Samuel McDowell. Um, and his mother was um, apparently a sex worker. And uh, Samuel Little says that his mom abandoned him so that's why he was mainly raised by his grandmother in lorraine ohio um some reports say that his mother gave birth to him in prison um and i did some research on this because i was just like what 
well, I don't ever want to experience giving birth in prison, but I wanted to know like what that looks like because I've seen it on TV, but like who knows if that's like the real deal. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you give birth in prison, the baby is only allowed to stay with you in prison if your release date is before the child turns 18 months. Mm. So their idea is that psychologically the child won't actually remember their first 18 months in prison. Mm -hmm. They'll just like, it won't be something that they remember, but after 18 months, it's something that could, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, so if your release date is after the 18 months, then the baby is taken from the mother between 48 and 72 hours from the time of birth and Mm. either put in foster care or with a family member. So I'm, I obviously I couldn't find out real, like what really happened to to Mm -hmm. his mother or like what that situation was, but I'm, I'm guessing that if the, um, if the if he if she did give birth to him in prison, he she was probably going to be in there for longer than eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So he immediately went to his grandmother at that point. Um, and I do try to like I I mean I've said this many times, but I always try to find that like pivotal moment in mm-hmm. their lives that switches them to that this kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I don't I think birth was his yeah. his pro his like you know pivotal yeah. moment because um, that's his that's his grandmother's daughter too so she yeah. must be feeling a lot of things and he's probably hearing stories growing up mm-hmm. and like who knows if she is like you're good for nothing because of where you came from or yeah. you know mm-hmm. i don't know this is all conjecture but like I yeah can totally and like i'm i like this is also you know i'm not i'm not sure of this either but it like maybe drugs were involved while she was pregnant, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that, that could have, you know, altered him into a different type of reality. Yeah. Um, And we've talked about this in many cases and this kind of, that kind of lifestyle lends to them, you know, acting out and, you know, he was quite the troublemaker um, as if, the title serial killer didn't give that away anyway, but uh, yeah. Um, But anyway, he uh, had a lot of issues uh, in school. He attended the Hawthorne junior high school. um, And he basically just didn't really like listening, listening to authority and everybody that um, talked about him, talked about him as being an underachiever. Which I was like, well, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) he kind of proved people wrong in that sense, but in the the worst way possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When he was just 16 years old, he was convicted of breaking and entering um, in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, he was sent to juvie uh, at 16 years old. Uh, he was released from juvie when he turned 20 mm. and his mother was out of uh, prison at that point. So he moved in with her in Florida, which I feel like that, I don't know, maybe she was released before he ended up going to juvie or what. I don't not like, that's not very clear, mm-hmm. um, but it seems like the choice or being forced to move in with his mother was probably like a condition of his, uh, juvenile release maybe but he is over 18 so I'm not sure 
mm-hmm. how that works. If anybody knows, let us know. But mm-hmm. um, I just feel like it, it just probably didn't help to no. have to move back in with his mom, somebody who he considered abandoned him. Mm-hmm. Um, but during this time, he had a string of like odd jobs, but also really disturbing jobs that I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if this helped either, but he worked as a cemetery worker mm. and uh, an ambulance attendant. But evidently, he's the only one that has ever said that he worked as an ambulance assistant. Uh, ambulance assistant. <laughs> nobody like, wants to claim. Nobody. That. Yeah, like there's no <laughs> nobody wants to like be the the person that's like, yeah, I hired that guy. Um, so. Um, but there, like I said, there's no, not really any proof that he worked, um, as an ambulance assistant. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, he quote, began traveling more widely and had more run-ins with the law. And Hmm. we'll find out that he, like, as we, we move forward, that he was quite the traveler. (laughs) He, (laughs) he probably, I feel like he probably hit like every state at some point, but, um, he, his charges, uh, throughout this time were like from drunk, uh, drunk driving, fraud, shoplifting, uh, solicitation. He was arrested a couple times for, um, picking up a sex worker, um, and being caught with them. He, uh, had a charge of armed robbery, aggravated assault and rape. Mm. And all of these crimes were committed across uh, eight states in the in the US. Um, but his prison time doesn't really equal the amount of chart like, you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. like, there's really no like balance to like as all the charges that he would, you know, be picked up for and the amount of prison time that he did mm-hmm. were very um, uneven I guess I'm trying to think of a word but you know um so let's talk a little bit about his prison time so in 1961 he went to prison for breaking into a furniture store um and he did go to prison but he was released in 1964 um but by 1974 he had been arrested 26 times oh my god across 11 states a 10-year span he was arrested and he's 26 times. he 34 at that point. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and his, his charges, again, were from assault, breaking and entering, and rape, and he was released every single time. And it was wow. like, he would, like, serve a little bit of time, and then they would release him, or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the whatever, whatever charge for, like, breaking and entering, they would drop the breaking and entering, but convict him on rape, and then he would only do a year or something. Like, it was very... Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all in a different state. So he was never right. like, and he would just no, like electronic background. They can't see that he did X, Y, Z. And which state and when, and sometimes he would be extradited yeah. and then he would be in a different state. It was just kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. So like, I get it why he was able to kind of get away with some of these things, but it's also like, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time why is there a statute of limitations on rape and mm-hmm. why is somebody who is convicted of rape only doing like six months that's crazy. or like a year like that's yeah. insane that is crazy 
Ugh. Um, he was also a cocky motherfucker. I mean, um, when I read this, I, I laughed. <laughs> so he claimed that he showed potential as a prize fighter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, because in his like prison, like when he would go to prison for like a year or two years or whatever his stint in prison was, he like took up boxing and he thought he was really good at it. Um, but obviously that promise got him absolutely nowhere because he was always just like back in prison again and again. Yeah. Um, but that I does speak to his physicality and how strong and like brutish yeah, was, yeah. It's just scary. so funny because I, I don't remember what TV show it is, but I was, uh, they have like a line where, what show is it? Now I have to think about it. Oh, I think it's Friends because that's like my favorite show ever. But <laughs> um, she like her, Rachel's sister is like, I'm, I'm a decorator now because she's like talking about her job. She's like, I'm a decorator. And she's like, oh, you decorate dad's office one time and now you're a decorator. And she's like, I went to the zoo yesterday and now I'm a koala bear. <laughs> so when I read this and it's just like, oh, so you like boxed a couple times by yourself in prison. And now all of a sudden you're you have the potential to be a prize fighter. Get the fuck out of here. Um but it just made me laugh because it's just like, no. And obviously he didn't pursue that career at all. So it's just like, well, maybe if you would have put your energy, because don't act like there's people that don't go to prison and like turn their life around and right. then end up becoming somebody it like who's wanted right. in their communities. Like people do turn their lives around and like, yeah, I believe you. You might have been a really good boxer, but did you do anything with that? No. Yeah. So, like, don't try to be cocky about it. Like, anyway. Um, so, in 1982, um, he was charged with the murder of a 22-year-old woman by the name of Melinda Rose Laprie. She went missing in September of that year. Um, and the case was brought to a grand jury, but they declined to indict him. Why? What? I could not find their specific reason, but what ended up happening was he, after basically he was released for that, uh, that charge, but was then transferred to Florida because while he was in custody in Mississippi for, uh, Melinda's murder, they linked him to another murder, um, in Florida. So he was brought to trial for the murder of, 26 year old Patricia Ann Mount and her body was found in September of 82, the same month that Le at, that Melinda was found. Oh. Um, and they had like a bunch of witnesses that testified that he, that they saw uh, little out with Patricia the day before she was reported missing, but he was acquitted on that charge because they said that the witnesses weren't credible. Ugh. So he kind of got off on two murder charges there because the oh grand jury God. wouldn't indict on the first and the second. They were like, you know, there's not enough evidence to prove that he was the one that killed her. Oh. Yeah. So then after this, he he goes from Florida and he moves to San Diego, California. And it wasn't long before he was arrested again. And this time it was for kidnapping, strangling, and beating a 22-year-old 
a girl named Lori Barros. Barros. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but she did survive. Um, and he would have gotten away with that. But he did the same thing to another woman in the same location. So oh my God. Lori is like, yeah, this happened. And this guy did all these like hor- horrible things to me at this location. And um, I didn't write the location down. I apologize. Uh, but then he did the same thing. And he was caught in the backseat of his car with an unconscious woman also beaten and strangled. So they're like, yo, dude, like, were you the one so that had, did the same had, like, a spot? Yeah. He would do this. Oh yeah. my God. So he, only, but get this, he only serves two and a half years for both of those crimes. What? Even, even though they were both attempted murders. What? Because he strangled them. And it's how like, does that happen? How? Like, who is his lawyer? I don't know. Um, so he does two and a half years for that. And he's released in February of uh, 1987. And he moves back to Los Angeles. Um, and weirdly, he had, like, we say this pretty much about every serial killer. He had a longtime girlfriend. Mm. And her, I couldn't find her last name, but I'm sure there's a reason for that. But her name was Jean. Um, she is now deceased, but she basically was with him through all of this. And she supported both of them by shoplifting and doing her own little thing while he was out doing all this Did stuff. she know he was, like, murdering? I don't... I couldn't find that out. I'm not sure, but I just feel like, yeah. Uh, I I just don't see. So they're like drug addicts or something. Yeah. Like, I just feel like, and maybe he wasn't like telling her that, oh, like, yeah, I just murdered this girl. Like, of course, that's not something that he, I think he would just like offer up that information to her. But mm-hmm. she was definitely like around and like he was being convicted for all of these different or he was being arrested and put on trial for all of these murders. Mm, like there's so, no way yeah. she didn't have a clue or just like yeah. even a hint that he might have been. And a lot of the times he was let off on these stuff for for the stuff for like technicalities or like little things that went wrong in the trial. So I doubt mm-hmm. she didn't know. Um so let's speed up to 25 years later. On September 5th, 2012, Samuel Little is arrested at a homeless shelter in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and they initially picked him up there because for like a drug, a drug charge. Um, but when they brought him in, they um, took his DNA. So, and by taking his DNA, they ended up linking him to three murders in California. He was extradited to Los Angeles on January 7th, 2013 to face murder charges for Carol Eileen Elford, who was killed July 13th, 1987. Guadalupe Duarte Apadka. So sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but she was killed September 3rd, 1987. And 
Audrey Nelson Everett, who was killed August 4th, 1989. Um, so he's put on trial for these, these murders. And, um, as the police are preparing his trial, they're getting all these DNA hits for dozens of murders dating back to the eighties. Um, for like mm. all these uh, missing persons uh, reports or like bodies that have turned up. So they're linking him to, to dozens of, and they're coming in like clockwork. And because of this, they ended up reopening the case of Melinda Rose Lepree, the case that the first one, the first one where the jury, the grand jury wouldn't indict. Mm-hmm. So they reopened that one and he is convicted for that as well. Um, and they end up, testing his DNA in 93 unsolved murders of women committed uh, or like missing person or murder cases committed across the entire United States. Um, And they're still doing that. Like they don't, Mm -hmm. there's never, there was like never a stopping point there. Um, And they're just testing him for his DNA on everything that comes Mm -hmm. in. So this is where I started my research. Um, so September 2014 is when he's convicted for the three murders of Alfred Nelson and Apodaca in Los Angeles or California. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prosecution's main evidence in those cases was the DNA evidence from the crime, as well as the eyewitness testimony from the other two victims that you mentioned that he attacked in San Diego because they could identify him. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they linked the, all those cases. So now they're starting this, like, web of, uh, you know, investigations and cold cases and everything, going from the DNA evidence and, and things pinging up here and there. Um, on September 25th, 2014, Little was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for mm-hmm. those three murders while the other investigations are ongoing, but he maintained his innocence for everything. Like, he was like, I never did a thing. I never touched <laughs> anybody. I never shoplifted. Like, like for, like, all 72 of his arrests, didn't do it. Oh, um, all right. So he, like, that was his whole did, did he really think that they believed him? <laughs> or was he like... I mean, I don't know. I can't get into this guy's head. That is so. Okay. So basically, he's like serving three life sentences at the California State Prison in, in Los Angeles County, um, and you know that is the end of that, right? Rungo. Oh, ha ha right. ha! Fooled you. Just kidding. <laughs> Just like he fooled everybody. That that I was guess. Not. I'd be like, I did two sentences of research, and that's the case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at this point, this is where. A Texas ranger by the name of James Holland comes in. Wow. So Little is serving his three life sentences, but the FBI, like, looked at his history with the law enforcement and noticed what you noticed, Asia, that he was really skilled at, like, skirting law enforcement for decades and only doing, like, a little bit of time here, a little bit of there, everything. And they were like, this is such a strange pattern for somebody. Mm -hmm. And, like... This is somebody who kind of knows what he's doing and knows where the line is and yeah. knows how to, like, be a little snaky. So mm-hmm. this caught the eye of James Holland, who wanted to look into him more. And Holland specialized in getting confessions in cases that had no DNA evidence. Oh, okay. So 
like his whole thing was like they had an like if you had an idea about a guy and you didn't have like solid evidence you would call james holland and he would come in and get a confession Mm -hmm. which is enough to convict somebody now we can talk about leading the witness and how Mm -hmm. you know confessions under duress and all that kind of stuff uh i don't know holland's other work or anything but like his work in this case is particularly impressive so Mm -hmm. um that's a that's a whole nother conversation but he like he noticed the dna thing with little but then also know knew that like throughout the decades there's so many there's so much time before dna could be captured or Mm -hmm. stored as evidence and like you and I know how often evidence gets destroyed. So he's yeah. like thinking that he can maybe like tap and get a few more cases solved mm-hmm. by talking to Samuel Little. There's not, you know, he just, you know, wanted to see what Samuel Little had to say to see if there was anything that could connect him to a couple other cases. Other cases, yeah. Okay. Um, James Holland was asked in a CBS interview, how do you get through to a serial killer in an investigation? And Holland says that you have to avoid things like remorse and closure. Usually if it's a one-time person, you say, like, don't you want to give the family closure? Don't you feel bad? Don't you want to do anything? Mm-hmm. Like, don't you... Like, you appeal to the the human emotion. And Holland yeah. says for serial killers, quote, it doesn't appeal to them at all. I mean, you're asking them to open up their soul to the things that are more intimate to them than anything in life. Why should they do that with you? And that's what you're working for. Mm-hmm. So he says that the way around it is not through remorse, is not through any of those emotions because serial killers have built up such a wall and Mm. such a sort of hatred for humanity that appealing to their humanity is not going to get you anywhere. So Holland went in to interview Little, and Little had always been hostile towards law enforcement. He hated them, Mm. everything. And the first time he, like, went in to interview with James Holland, there's a video, and he just yells and rants for 30 minutes about how he's done wrong and how he's falsely accused and the thing he kept saying over and over is that like he's not a rapist because he was convicted for that rape in the FBI databases he's listed as a sexual abuser and he kept going on and on I'm not a rapist I'm not a rapist I did not do that I am not a rapist Uh so that's when James Holland kind of had like a aha moment and Holland says quote there was no doubt in my mind that Samuel Little was not a rapist which I mean Who knows? But back to the quote. But I told him he knew it. And I knew that he was a killer. So he stops and he kind of looks at me for a second. And he doesn't seem to mind it. And then you could see in his eyes that he's looking away and he follows back as I say the word killer. And that appealed to him. That's how he defines himself. Oh, my God. And that was the key that Holland got to because Samuel Little was not going to talk to anybody that viewed him Him. as something that he didn't view himself. And as soon as Holland was like, I hear you. I hear that you Mm -hmm. are not a rapist and I believe you. Yeah. But what you are is a killer. And like that was like, oh, it was just like Samuel Little like stepped into the spotlight and is like, yes, that is what I am. Oh, my God crazy 
just fascinating. And with yeah. with that and with that sort of, I mean, that kind of goes to the psych- psychology of it all where it's like people just want to be understood mm-hmm. and want to, to have that like basic human respect and like based on what you're saying about his childhood and like his trouble with the law he probably had people telling him who he was and what he was for his, his whole life. life and it could have started from you know the beginning of like i mean yes i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past that i don't know anything about his mom or his grandmother but like being a mistake Mm-hmm. Being someone who, like, we didn't want you here. We didn't, and maybe that could have formed his aggression towards women and being like, I didn't, like, I'm not a rapist because rape, rape to him is obviously, it's, it's, or rape in general is about power, but mm-hmm. it's like he didn't want power. He just wanted to hurt, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like, t- like, take, put that pain and, and, and anger into something else. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if there was like, he needed the power there, but it's, and it's also well, interesting murder that murder is about powder power too. So I wonder if he's just like, I'm not a rapist because he didn't, when he would kill, he would not rape people. So he doesn't, yeah. he's like, that's not, I don't have like sexually motivated crimes, mm-hmm. but like I am a, killer like my whole thing like i'm not doing it to rape i'm not doing it for the sex of it i'm doing to kill yeah you know what i mean like seems like a stupid distinction to make on like our side of things yeah like that was the thing that Mm -hmm. opened him up because after he got that recognition from holland he just started confessing and holland he arranged with holland that a he would not get the death penalty for anything that he said he would do and b he would be transferred out of uh the los angeles prison where he was yeah so because he wanted to go to federal prison right right yeah because federal prison um, is like the cruises of all prisons yeah i know (laughs) which i don't know i've heard that like death row is like the bee's knees and you could be there for years and years I mean, that's what I heard. I don't know. I wonder what it, like, what is it? Like, I've never been in that situation. So, like, what is it that's more? I think you get your own cell. I think the food is better. You're, like, protected from the masses. You're in a separate area, so there's less people. Get your own toilet, that kind of thing. Uh, That's what, I watched the first episode of um, I Am a Killer, maybe, on Netflix, or, like, Mm -hmm. Confessions with Killers or something like that. In the first episode, the guy was like somebody that was in and out of jail and he wanted to get on death row because they treated the inmates better so he killed somebody in prison to get on (gasps) death row i think you told me that so i don't know why i'm reacting like (gasps) because i think i now that i'm remembering you telling me something like that but that's crazy like i just so what is it like they're because they're about to die i think they get better treatment but like the the thing with that is then like okay well how long does that last because are you on death row for six months are you on for you know 30 years like i don't know like where the end is Mm -hmm. and then also like there's plenty of people that are executed that are wrongfully convicted maybe i should have asked you this as a would you rather but it's just coming to my mind now what would be your death row meal I don't know. See, okay, here's the thing. I'm vegan, 
So, but I'm like, if it's my last meal, do I go with like my grandmother's lasagna that we have at Christmas that's like full of meat and cheese? Or do I like stick to my delicious vegan things that I also love? I don't know. That's hard. What's your death row meal? Um, I think, well, I'm not vegan. I like meats and cheeses and all the all the dairy that I can have. <laughs> um, and so I think mine would be like a really good steak, like a really good steak. Like I, if there was like a hundred dollar steak, like I'd want that steak and your face. Yeah, I get it. You hate meat, but I'm like getting nauseous <laughs> thinking about it, but even before I was vegan, I would get nauseous thinking yeah. about steak. So, um, you know, like that's a mashed potatoes, um, Brussels sprouts, roasted Brussels sprouts are like my favorite vegetable. Um, either that or like the best like truffle mushroom risotto deal. Do you hate well, mushrooms too? I, okay, I have a fear of mushrooms. I can't even talk about it. It makes the bottom of my feet feel terrible, and it makes me want to shave my skin off. I hate them. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to, like, get around the the bottom of your feet. Why why does it affect your bottom? Because they're going to grow from between my toes. (laughs) I hate them. Oh, my gosh. I love this. Wait. One time in high school, I was in a psychology class and we were talking about phobias and he was like, does anybody have a phobia? Like a lot of people claim to have phobias, but they don't have any real phobias. And I was like, oh, I have, I'm afraid of mushrooms. And I started like talking about it and I gave myself a panic <gasps> attack. And then I had to like run out of the classroom and I ran out and there was like a lawn in front and there was a whole, there's a bunch of <laughs> mushrooms <laughs> growing on the lawn. And I just like collapsed because oh. I was having such a bad day. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. You and my dad would get along very well. He despises Ugh. mushrooms. Like he, like I've even seen him get to the point of like we're at a restaurant ordering and he gets like really like not angry, but he gets very assertive with the like the waiter to be like, if there is mushrooms in anything on this table like nobody is allowed to order mushrooms around him mushrooms can't be in the house like I, okay even the word <coughs> mushroom is disgusting. it's like it's like the word moist <laughs> that people like yeah yeah but i didn't know that about you that's so i'm learning uh, something new i try not to talk about it i feel okay if there's like the very thin mushrooms that are like cooked to death on a pizza or something mm. like that that's okay because they have been destroyed and taught who's boss. <laughs> okay. So you you want to make you want to assume authority over I want to destroy mushrooms. them. All right, I guess. Yeah. So I will never invite you over if I'm making anything that has mushrooms in it. I yeah. appreciate it. Okay. Should we talk about something yeah, a little? Yeah. Now that we're done talking about food, I'm kind of hungry now. <laughs> I know me too. Not for no. mushrooms though. Fuck that shit. Um Okay, so James Holland got through to him and figured out the key to, like, opening him up. And he just started confessing Mm -hmm. to, like, case after case after case. And the thing that James Holland noticed is that he had, like, a photographic memory. And his his, sometimes his details weren't all Uh there or, you know, whatever. Like, clothing was wrong and things like that. But he 
was would remember very specific things about each case. Excuse me, I had a little burp there, but we'll put right. that in. Holland says, quote, with Sammy, there's indications of vis- visualization of when he's thinking about a crime scene. He'll start stroking his face, and he's starting to picture a victim. You'll see him look out and up, and you can tell he's has this revolving carousel of victims, and he's just spinning, and he's waiting for it to stop at the one he wants to talk about. Oh, my God. Which, oh. That is just- terrifying. Horrifying. Also, he's like a Rolodex. He, he called him Sammy? Yes. That was interesting, too, where he called him Sammy. Which, like, his whole thing is, like, he is spending hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours and hours with him and all the people that he's getting confessions from, and they need to build a rapport. Yeah. So if that's yeah the way he does it, that's yeah. how he does that it. That took like, me, like, whoa. Like, I would call my friend sammy if her, their name was samuel or samantha or something yeah. but not a serial yeah. killer but all right but wow i mean his whole job though yeah. is to get in there in the way that somebody yeah. else hasn't so if that's what his if that's what sammy's friends call him then you call him yeah. sammy yeah. to say i am a friend um, you know so and this photographic memory was all, like this was something that the detective found out later on or like as as he was interrogating him he could tell that as he's interrogating him he can tell that like because james holland has this experience with other people giving confessions and like so he he knows about memory and he knows sort of the tricks it can play on you and then with samuel little he saw something in him Mm -hmm. that was like that was different. Okay. So it was James Holland who had the idea to give him art supplies and have him start drawing his victim. And he could do that from so memory. He could do it from memory. So oh as Samuel Little is confessing and telling the story and the details of each murder, he's drawing out the women's faces. And the drawings are available online and we'll post mm-hmm. them. But they're different from each other. Like if I were to draw a couple faces, I don't know if I could make them look that different from yeah. each other. Yeah. I but I mean like, he, a he I has I didn't re- like we said I didn't research your stuff, but when I saw those yeah. come up, I thought they were paintings of like, you know, when like to identify a victim or identify a you know, uh, somebody who's convicted or whatever, like they do the facial, what is it called? Like when they have the sketch artist. Oh, like reconstruction. Yeah. The, yeah, they have the, like, oh, no, it's it's from his memory. Oh, wow. Oh, my God, that's even more creepy. Notes. Oh, my God. It's so fucking creepy. He would write little notes, and like one of them he drew, he wrote like a little speech bubble, and it says like, I love Sammy. Ugh. Like he killed me and I'm <gasps> his. Oh, no. Yeah. And each one has like little things like Ooh, that. Oh, I just got the chills. That's so it's disturbing. Terrifying. It's the creepiest shit I've ever heard. Oh my god. And the on uh, the FBI website, they actually have video of him describing a bunch of murders that they're mm-hmm. looking for help in solving, so you can watch yeah. them. And I watched a couple, and he's very like 
he's just like your grandpa because at this point he's 78 years old and he's just like telling a story about his past and he's like yeah so i picked up lucille who's what they now call transgender and you know she was at a bar and she had on a cream and red mini skirt and we i took her up and i went out about a mile out of miami and there was like a pathway i don't know where it was leading to but i like Took, I drove up the pathway and I turned the car around and I parked the car so I could see the highway and I dragged her out of the out of the car and then I started strangling her and I was like seeing if anybody's coming down the path and just saying it like that like literally like that so he's basically recounting strangling a human being as my grandfather or great-grandfather would tell me how he used to have to walk to school in the snow yep and the details well, of like up. yeah <laughs> there was another one where he was saying like oh she had like honey colored skin and she had like he said originally like oh she has buck teeth oh no 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 she had a gap that's what it was so he like remembers like there's something about her teeth but then it like takes a second but it's like literally like i couldn't tell you about people from my middle school you know and it's, like, I get that they're having, like, a more, like, like you would think that, like, you would remember somebody that you murder yeah. and everything. But if it's, like, 40 years and there's hundreds of them or, like, 93 of yeah. them, like, you don't remember. I don't think. You start yeah, to forget. I don't even think I could really describe in that detail not only, like, what I did a week ago, but, like, the person that I came in, like, like if somebody right. asked me to describe everything about your, your facial features or like, I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I could for the most part, but like, I would never be able to recount in like great detail like that. And mm-hmm. I see you at least a couple times a week. So for someone to have, yeah. it's almost genius. It's almost like, and it's very like savant. Yeah, and it's I, and I we I, yes. I keep saying the same thing over again, and we we say this about a lot of these serial killers or people who have murdered that like they could have put that into something so much more constructive and mm-hmm. like, and that goes back to how yeah. you're raised, and, yeah. Like, whether or not you're taught that you're worth yeah. something. Like that the fact that this guy had such such a talent in that way is yeah. fascinating, but it's also so sad because it could have been something different. And there all of these women yeah. could still be here. And it's just <sighs> so wow. many women. Um so I'm gonna go into some of his confessions like he confessed to 93 murders so oh, god i can't like i can't cover them so 93 all. murders since the early 80s 70s from like 1970 to i think the last one was maybe like 90 90 something because he was in his 50s. So one of the... Because like I'm, I'm just looking... But I, no. yeah, well, yeah. Uh, this... Everything is like, who knows what, what. But, like, I'm looking back at, like, what I researched. And he was... The first, like, murder that he was charged with was from 1982. 
So then he had. I have ones where it's from he the sendi- says, 70s. like he confessed to ones before wow. that. But this is where it gets tricky because he's confessed to a lot of uh-huh. crimes, but but it hasn't been like perfectly proven mm-hmm. or they haven't found the body or like okay. there's not cold cases. So there's some confessions that are haven't been proven. Okay. And he... So I'm going through his confessions, okay. but there could be so he has. God, I think he's kind of fucking with them because if he has the mental capacity to recall someone's face from memory, but he can't tell them where he dumped their body. No, I'm saying that he he has said where he's dumped. But not all of them. But. No, no, no. Sometimes there has been no body found there. So if oh. he's saying, oh, yeah, I went over to the park on La Brea and I dumped her body there in 1972, then they're like, well, there's been no body found there. Like, we'll search the area, but sometimes nothing comes up and sometimes there's no body there because maybe, you know, animals took her or oh whatever. Oh, my God. So it's okay. things like that where he'll be specific, but then it won't Pan necessarily yeah. add up. Or, like, if it's somebody that's missing and then... You know, he dumped a body in a river. Okay. That kind of wow. thing. So I'm going to go through the, the order of these confessions are the order that he confessed okay. them, not the order that he committed okay. them. Um, but uh, whatever, you'll just see that your head will be spinning in mm. a second. So um, he confessed to the 1996 strangulation of Melissa Thomas. Uh he was charged with the 1994 murder of Denise Christie brothers in Odessa, Texas, which he received another life sentence okay. for. Um, the Ector County district attorney and wise County Sheriff's office announced that he confessed to dozens of murders that, uh, were in their area. Okay. Oh, two, they are saying the last one was 2005 from 1970 to 2005. Okay. Um, in Alabama, he confessed to the 1979 murder of 23-year-old Brenda Alexander in Macon, Georgia. Um, they, he confessed to the 1977 strangling of an unidentified woman. And so that's a name that he couldn't remember. Maybe he never knew the 19, uh, and confessed to the 1982 strangling murder of 18-year-old Fredonia Smith. Um, he also confessed to the 1982 murder of 55-year-old Dorothy Richards and the 1996 murder of 40-year-old Daisy McGuire, both found in Huma, Louisiana, I think, H-O-U-M-A. Um, he confessed to the Mississippi murdering of 36-year-old Julia Critchfield in 1978 and dumping her body off a cliff. God. Um... Another Mississippi murder of the killing of 46-year-old Nancy Carol Stevens in Tupelo in 2005. Um, And, like, sometimes he would get very specific, like I was saying. Sometimes he couldn't remember certain things because he's Mm -hmm. old. But um, one example of, like, being very specific is that he said he remembered killing a woman outside of Miami and seeing, like, a specific kind of arch way near where he dumped the Mm. body so the police investigated and looked at cold cases and searched like where 
those would be and they found arches that fit that description and cross-referenced it with cold cases and realized that that's where a woman named Miriam Chapman's body was found in 1976. Oh. So that's an example of where he didn't remember somebody's yeah. name, but remembered a specific thing that then allowed to them to okay. connect those cases. Yeah. Wow. Um, he confessed to the Richland County, South Carolina murder of 19-year-old Evelyn Weston in 1978. In Marion County, he confessed to killing 20-year-old Rosie Hill in 1982. Um, On November 27th, 2018, which is like two weeks after he started confessing, the FBI announced that they had confirmed 34 of his confessions. Wow. Holy shit. So they were working like overtime, and the amount of detail that he was given made it very easy for them to just like... Like, you know? And part of the... issue and why he got away with it for so long is that there was no interstate system okay and now as he's confessing in 2018 people can type in 1978 Mm -hmm. or 2005 tupelo whatever and the cases will come up rather than having to look through them so it's much easier Mm -hmm. to find what he's talking about now that's Um, like the vicap system or something i read something about that yeah yeah okay yeah um, he confessed to a cold case homicide in Prince George's County, Maryland, with an unidentified victim. Um, he was, in December of 2018, he was indicted for strangling Linda Sue Boards, 23 years old, in 1981 in Warren County, Kentucky, and her body was found near Route 68. Uh, another vis- victim was Martha Cunningham of Knox County, Tennessee who was 35 when she was murdered in 1975. Oh, my God. I know. It's just, like, I'm not even, like, close to being. Oh, God. Um, Then on May 31st, 2019, so this is, like, you know, a while later, as this is still going on, a little was indicted for the murders and kidnapping of Mary Jo Payton in 1984 and Rose Evans in 1991 in Cleveland. Um... Both victims were strangled and dumped. Uh, Rose Evans' body was found in a vacant lot on East 39th Street in August, which is, like, exposed to the heat and just terrible. And she had been strangled. And um, Peyton's body um, remained unidentified until 1992, so for a decade because she was so badly decomposed and she was only identified when Cleveland authorities uploaded her thumbprint to the FBI database and got a match. So like they took her remains and did that, but that's like Mm -hmm. when that program started. Little had picked Peyton up near a, at a bar near East 105th street and Euclid Avenue. He described her as a short plump woman in her twenties with brown hair. Um, and that's sort of how he would describe things. And when Rose Evans' body was found in the vacant lot in Cleveland in 1991, um, they actually identified her because they had her mother and her young son come to the lot where her body was found to identify oh, no. her. And I saw something with her son <sighs> who was like, that is the worst yeah. thing ever. And then it took... From 1991 to 2019 to find out who did that to his mother. Oh, my God. 
And also, I, I was like, why the fuck would you yeah, bring a child that down to where you found in, the body? Like, why wouldn't you take it? That it sounds like it really I don't know in what the poor fuck taste. I don't think you should. Yeah. How old, how old was Terrible. he? Terrible. Do you know? Uh, 14, he said, I think. What? 13 or 14. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sorry, her mother couldn't identify? Like, you're going to traumatize this kid? Oh, my yeah. God. I know. That was, like, that was Yeah. Shocking. What year was that? 1991. Oh. All right. Not that that makes a difference. I'm just saying, like, no, you know, that still. was that was like just ending the time of like the 70s and 80s when kids were, you know, allowed to do and see whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was a very freedom in what you would let your your children yeah. be involved in. But that but seems still. like God seems r- ridiculous. I hope that boy has Bad not poor taste. Yeah. OK. I know. Yeah, I can't. Um. And now, and this one is an example of like how it. There are still some vague mm-hmm. ones, but Little confessed to killing another Cleveland woman in 1977 or 1978, but she wasn't found until March 18th, 1983, mm. and she was likely black and between 17 and 35 years old, and. She had been dumped down a grassy slope near a fence in a wooded area just outside of, or just off uh, Interstate 271, mm-hmm. when her body was found by a man walking his dog. Oh. Because she had been out there and exposed for so long, only her skeleton, some jewelry, and clothing remained. And so they haven't been able to identify her, but they have, like, time-stamped that, and with... Uh, Little's year and like the specificity of saying like that's where he dumped mm-hmm. her and so that's how they found like, like oh in 1983 that's when a body was found okay. there oh lord oh so, my god yeah um, he also confessed to killing a woman in Akron two in Cincinnati one of the bodies was dumped outside of Columbus and one was disposed of in Kentucky um, one of them was named Anna Stewart who was 33 last seen October 6, 1981, and was killed October 11th. Wow. So she spent five days with him. And he had a couple of stories of where he would um, meet women at, like, crack houses or, you know, places like that and hang out with them for a Mm -hmm. while and sort of, like, you know, for a week or two or a couple days just hang out with them and, like, hook up and whatever and then kill them. So it was like he had these little dalliances that ended in murder Mm -hmm. targeting women addicted to drugs. And I'm sure to them this was Um, just like, wow, this is just like this guy wants to have a couple days with me and I I get my fix and he gets mm -hmm. his fix and we move on. But it never ended that way. And that was one of the stories that he said was that he picked up a woman at a crack house and they were like riding around and they would go shoplifting and he was like go shoplifting at Kroger's and Benton's and all these places whatever and in one of the stores he ended up getting arrested for shoplifting she didn't but she didn't have anywhere to go so she was sleeping in her car in the parking lot of like the Uh store while Samuel Little was in jail for shoplifting and then the store owner got so annoyed that she was in the car sleeping that the store owner decided to drop the charges and release him so that he he could come and, like, pick up the car and t- get the woman 
out oh of there. Oh my god. So then they released him and he went and he killed her. Oh no. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god, that so store I feel owner like there's a lot is probably of, like, like small town. Ugh. I know. But probably doesn't Yeah, even probably. Know. But it's just like you don't even really realize what's going like the bigger picture of what's happening here it's like that's just an annoyance right. it's like oh she's sleeping in the parking lot it's such so inconvenient for us but yeah but also it's like oh i'm gonna drop these shoplifting charges it's yeah. not that big a deal that would like make everyone's mm-hmm. life worse so like i'm gonna let this yeah. guy off but you have no idea which is like normally yeah you have no idea that shoplifting this... is the least of his yeah right oh god but that this is this case is exactly why like it's so frustrating because it really like underlines that like fear and lack of forgiveness that people treat people Mm -hmm. with that like do this kind of stuff and assume the worst of people that look like Samuel Little and stuff. And it's like, he is perpetuating this stereotype that by and large is not true, Mm -hmm. but makes like you know if in the 80s he's killing people in la and the news is saying oh there's a black serial killer on the loose like the panic that that Mm -hmm. would induce from like white people is crazy but it's also like that store owner who's like oh i'm not gonna ruin this guy's life by like pressing shoplifting charges has no idea yeah like the amount of pain that that will cause Mm -hmm him for by not going yeah. to jail so it's like how do you you can't I know. I, it, it, this is why it's so confusing mm-hmm. to me because it's like i mean the majority of people are not samuel yeah. little because only samuel little is samuel little but it also is like i don't know are some people just bad is he just bad y- yeah i think like, can he be redeemed I mean, I have, I've, I feel like I can always see the good, you know, like I could Mm -hmm. always see like a way that there's a possibility to redirect someone, but for him in this Mm -hmm. state, like, I just think he's too far gone. But, like, I feel like if he was arrested back in 82 when he was first charged for rape and he was, like, rehabilitated then, would he have been able to redirect that anger into something more... I think that's putting a lot of faith in the system. Yeah, which they're like, I don't like, I just think that at this point, no. And I think that, yes, he is genuinely just a bad person. And even if he did turn his life around, what he has done just makes him a bad person regardless. But I don't know. I just. Like, I want to see the good. I, I like, want to see yeah. someone, you know, like, know. and we say this all the time about us. Like, I'm very much 
the good twin and glass half full kind of thing where I'm just like, <laughs> well, maybe, you know, there's a, there's gotta be a reason and there's a way to redirect that negative energy when you're like, no, he's just fucking bad and he should pay for his, char- his, his actions, which I also agree with, but I'm just conflicted. Like I said in the beginning, I'm very much yeah. on both sides of well, this. Well, I feel conflicted because I feel like this, like, On an individual level and what he did, bad should be in jail, should die there. But on, like, I don't know. I feel like this way with, like, R. Kelly and everything, Mm. too, where it's like, that's so fucking shitty and fuck you. And, like, why do you have to do this to black men? Why do you have to make, like, because, because, and that's even, like, a prejudice on my end where I look at individual black men and I'm like, you should have the weight of the world of all black men on you, which is not fair. No. That's not fair of me. Um, because we don't do that to white like men. Ted, We're Ted not. Bundy doesn't. Exactly, yeah. We don't right. say, Ted like, Bundy to e- represent the every white next man. Joe Schmo, like, hey, you should be thinking about the the people around you that you're setting this example or setting the stereotype and perpetuating mm-hmm. that, we don't say that to white men. So, like, mm-hmm. why should we say that to black men? Right. But everybody should have the ability to be themselves without having it mean a, like, something bigger. Something about their yeah. community. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, <sighs> I think the reason for that, a large part of that is because a lot of the times these black men come from a very similar situation. Like Mm -hmm. maybe not every, obviously not every black man is born in, in the prison system, but they're, they're born or raised very close to that type of lifestyle. And where, Mm -hmm. and we put that pressure on, on them to, be more like white men who have more opportunity to be better people. But we don't give black men and white men the same tools to do that. So Samuel Little at this point, born in the prison system, didn't really have a support system in his life. Um, And a lot of black men do that too. And they try to turn bad and and evil things that happen like drugs, you know, you know, weapons and all this stuff, mm-hmm. like in and out of prison, in and out of juvie. Like we, those are the tools that they have to try to turn that situation, that bad situation into good. And the tools mm-hmm. we give white men and is, okay, here's something yeah. good, turn it into something better. So, yeah. and I want to specify that like, obviously not everybody is born into a situation like that. But the way that our society says, like, these are your Mm -hmm. options, that's what you're saying. It's not that their families or, you know, anybody like that is only saying that. It's that it's so much harder for people born into those circumstances to break out of those circumstances Mm -hmm than if you're born not yeah. in those circumstances. It's like we dig we dig a five foot like we nearly dig a five foot hole for black men and say, try to get to the top. And the white right. men 
And then the white men halfway start up, halfway, halfway above that. And then they're like, okay, try to turn yeah. this situation into something better than you already have. Right. And they're just not given yeah. the same tools. And, but then it's just, this is where I'm conflicted. Does that make those men bad? And then now Samuel Little is bad? Because I'm saying Samuel Little is bad. Well, the majority of those men do not murder the way true, that he true, murdered. Yes. Like, I, I just, like, I'm like, okay, well, then now I'm saying, now my point has switched a little to, like, well, he just didn't have the right tools, so he's really not bad. But he is. <laughs> well, I think, I if you look at, like, if you rewind mm-hmm. back, right, it's like his mother doing what she mm-hmm. had to do, probably a victim of, you know, the government and everything putting drugs into the communities of color to control them and suppress mm-hmm. them. Uh, she's a victim of that. She's doing what she had to do. And she gave birth to him. So he goes to his grandmother who, so automatically the family is torn apart by the mm-hmm. system and by racial prejudice and drugs and all that stuff. Then he grows up hearing that message over and mm-hmm. over again, whether it's, you know, maybe his grandmother was very loving and did everything she could and did everything right. But growing up in 40s, 50s Florida or Ohio, yeah. wherever, like, yeah, fuck. Like, that's fucking mm-hmm. impossible. Then getting sent to juvie at 16 and spending four formative years in juvie, which is not. It's not like boarding school. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, like being in that environment, mm-hmm. that could be the thing that like, you know, you talk about making a murderer yeah. and that that guy didn't do the thing he was convicted for. But while he was in jail, developed yeah. this side mm-hmm. of him. Maybe the same thing happened there. And then every time he went back to jail for no matter how long it was reinforced in him and he's being told by society, this is who you are. This is what you are. You're not worth yeah. it. You're not worth it. And then that anger is what's building up and the anger at his mother and everything and why he's mm-hmm. doing what he's doing. And I'm not excusing that at all. He should not be murdering people. But the the anger and frustration and, like, fighting back in any way that you can against a world that doesn't love you, I do understand that. And I think that that is the majority of why, like, there's disproportionately amount of black men incarcerated for stupid fucking little yeah. things like drug possession charges that should be dropped and they should be exonerated and mm-hmm. released. And that's not happening yeah. when, you know, think big weed companies are taking over all of a yeah. sudden. And now like that's in the white domain yeah. now. I, I saw this like meme <sighs> or whatever on Facebook that like shows this like, you know, white mom, soccer mom at home. She has like a YouTube video or a YouTube channel where she makes CBD and um, THC infused snacks and she sells them. And somebody like posted a like a comment under him, like, if you were black, this would not be okay. And yeah. it's sad, but it is like if she was black like the fact that there are countless you know African American or people of color sitting in prison for small drug possession charges but now this white lady with kids 
you know, mm-hmm. can make it into a career without. F- and it's like, no, she shouldn't be in trouble for that. We're just saying that the people that mm-hmm. did get in trouble for it, regardless of their color, should be exonerated. Yeah. Like, exactly. you can't profit. Like, how and you're you profiting off of people these people like being that. in prison, which is another thing. Like, the prison exactly. system should not be a for-profit profit biz- business. It's just like, there's such, right. a, there's such a fucked up cocktail. And it's just like, where do mm-hmm. you start? Do you start with the fucking starter? Or do you start with the, the garnish? You know, right. like, how do you... Right. You don't know. Like, it's just so hard yeah. to wrap my head around. And this, this case is like yeah. the epitome of that. Right, where it's just like every every little thing is like flip-flops back and mm-hmm. forth, where it's just like... Because I think we, we look at the cases as true crime fans, but also through a lens of social justice, and that's what makes this so yeah. confusing. Yeah. Because, like, he preyed on the most vulnerable people mm-hmm. in society... But, like, to truly have justice and to truly make their lo- their lives and death mean something, we have to look at why people like him are yeah. created. Yeah. And we're not doing that because that takes a whole overhaul of society. Mm-hmm. Ugh, God. <sighs> um, but, so, speaking of that, though, part of the reason that it took authorities so long to find him when his first murder is attributed back to 1970. He wasn't arrested until 2012, which I can't even do them. 42 years. Is that that right? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's Um, math. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Part of it is that that system wasn't set up where you could, you know, easily search and see his background and all that stuff. But, um, Journalist and former prosecutor Beth Karras, who is the host of Catching a Serial Killer, Sam Little, uh, which was a special on Oxygen, she says, quote, he was picking up women who were marginalized. Some were prostitutes, although not all of them. Some did have families that cared for them. But Sam Little did know that the women he picked up were not going to be missed, at least for a while. Wow. And I want to say, like, she says that, like, some were prostitutes, some all, some had families that some did have families that cared for them because you're a prostitute doesn't mean you don't have a family that cares about you. I think that was a a little bit of poor wording on your choice, but the point is, as well as the word prostitute, he, (laughs) well, yes, he picked people that he thought wouldn't be missed. He picked. And, and it's, it's true because how many of them still aren't identified? Like he's has, you know, eight women, Eight plus women that he's killed. You know, the Mary, uh, (laughs) I've forgotten the first one's name already. But since he was, with all these confessions, he's been convicted of killing eight women. Anna Stewart, Mary Jo Payton, Carol Elford, Guadalupe, Apodaca, Audrey Nelson. There's a Jane Doe, Rose Evans, Denise Christie Brothers, um... Plus others that we mentioned. Uh, this was also one of the confusing things where it was hard to pinpoint, like, who was, like, what state each case mm-hmm. was in. Or, like, not state as in, like, yeah. state, but, like, what point mm-hmm. the case was and, like, all the names and everything. It was very confusing and just very overwhelming. But um, there were also 
uh, Sarah Brown, Priscilla Pax- Baxter Jones, Francis Campbell, Jolanda or Yolanda Jones, Roberta Tundarek, um, and just other women that he only gave first names for, like Sarah or Donna or Lucille. Others he didn't know names at all. Um, in the, his whole list of confessions, there's two unnamed Hispanic women, seven unnamed white women, and 32 unnamed black Jesus. women. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And the other thing about these crimes is that he would do them in all the same way. Like, his MO was very mm-hmm. clear, um, which we didn't really talk about yet, but Karis, who was that, the host of that mm-hmm. CBS, or that Oxygen thing, she said, quote, what Sam Little liked to do was really sort of draw out the death of his victims. He had his thumbs, his hands around their necks. He was a big guy, so he would press on their necks, on their larynx and their vocal cords, their windpipe, until they would pass out, and then he would bring them to. Oh, my God. And he would ask them to swallow because he got off on the idea of their Adam's apple going up and down. Oh, no. So he prolonged it. He just, he really liked to play with, like, hovering in that space before death. And he did that with, according to him, 92 women because there was one woman that he drowned. What the f- um, Oh, my God. But I kind of was like, my whole thing was like, why is he all of a sudden talking? And part of it is that he was seen by James Holland in a way that he hadn't been seen mm-hmm. before. He wanted something. He wanted to not be on death row, and he wanted to go to federal, federal prison. And he'd been in jail for four years at that point or prison for four years and knew kind of knew like it's not going up so like might as well and he he was never Um, really he was never really moved to a federal prison was he um i don't yeah because i think on i I mean you i don't know maybe they just didn't update it on um wikipedia but i think on wikipedia it says that he's still at la county yeah, I mean, it could be that the terms of it are, is like once we, yeah, once you finish and we confirm, then yeah. you can move mm-hmm. or something. I don't know what okay. that is, but I don't think that he was moved. But he did not get death penalty okay. yeah. for anything yet. Um, Karis says, I think he knew the gig was up. He still talks about these women like they were my angels. I would tell them I loved them. They're mine. Once I killed them, they were mine. Oh, my God. This is not a guy who's cleansing his soul. So he's shown zero remorse or anything and shown taken a lot of pride in that and pride about like that relationship oh with Oh my them. god. I know. And I think about that a lot where like the person who like how a victim is when something happens mm-hmm. to them, they are now forever bound to the person that did the bad thing to yeah. them. And the thing that they never asked for, like, that's always going to be a part mm-hmm. of them now. And, like, you know, these women didn't survive. But, like, if you're talking about, like, assaults or sexual violence or every, anything mm-hmm. like that, like, there is that relationship. And so, in a way, he's right. Like, they are his because he made it that yeah. way. And he made it 
so that they couldn't ever exist without him being a part of mm-hmm. them anymore. It's just sickening. Oh my God. It's absolutely yeah. sickening. And I think, like, I remember when these confessions were starting to come out, mm-hmm. which was like two years ago, not even at this point, like a year and a half ago. Um, and he, it was just like more and more and more. And then it, everybody just kind of stopped talking about it. And I was like, like, he has more, like, he, he's the most prolific serial killer yeah. in history. Like, he should be the person that's, like, top of mind when people think of this stuff. Yeah. And he's not. And I was kind of, like, you know, also thinking about, like, why true crime is popular and how, like, podcasts like us, like, contribute mm-hmm. to the popularity and, like, is it good or is it bad and the media coverage and all that kind of stuff. But I think that um and like with what we do and the cases that we look at trying to focus on cases that haven't gotten as popularized Mm -hmm. as you know the cases that are in the zeitgeist right now but i think part of it is that a lot of true crime fans are white Mm -hmm. women who are have never really been exposed to sort of danger never really faced any kind of like tragedy so when they see cases like ted bundy they see it as like oh it could happen to me which is like oddly titillating and like you know seeing themselves in that sort of like danger it's kind of like a fun like it's horrifying and i don't really know if i'm explaining it right but it's like the cases where you could see yourself in them are more interesting to people Mm -hmm. Which is, like, true of, like, any sort of show or anything. If if the audience can see themselves yeah. in the if show. If they can relate in a so way of, like, thing. how that could potentially right. affect them. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, like, playing with that idea of, like, it could be me or this could happen, but I'm still safe and still in the knowledge that mm-hmm. they're safe, then it's fun, quote-unquote fun, to, like, yeah. jump in and explore these yeah. stories and these cases, rather. But I think for communities of color, like we talked about, like, the system is so against them that, like, this is their reality and they're raised with much more awareness Mm. and, like, the probability of it actually happening to to them is higher. higher. Wow, that's so, so, yeah, yeah. I think that's why maybe, maybe this is just my guess of why certain cases get more coverage because it's like the shock value of like who could imagine a pure white woman snapping and killing her family that Mm -hmm. kind of thing where it's like that is pretty much who does that yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah that 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 Um, thought that like true crime being popular to you and i and it and also can be not about color as well because like i'm totally totally i'm black and i'm have always been interested in true crime it's just something that fascinates me and i'm fascinated not because i picture myself or or find entertainment in relating to these stories or victims or Mm -hmm. or the situation but more about what 
what is the makeup of why this situation is what it is. Right. Um, but I can, right. I see where you're going. Like that is so fascinating I, yeah. to see like, yeah, it's entertaining because you know, you can put yourself in that idea that like the idea that you could be a victim at any point, but knowing first like 99% of the time that is never going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. But for people, it's like going on a roller yeah, coaster yeah. where it like feels exciting, mm-hmm. but yeah. you're safe. And, but for people of color, this is something that is so that's like lurking right outside their door. Like they, they have a very, um, it's like, they're just, I mean, like, that's yeah. Like, a little more yes. exaggerated, but no. Also but I, I like I yeah. get where just but to put it in perspective of yeah. like this could in those those types of community, death and tragedy and things that might be found interesting from people like us or or you know white white society mm-hmm. or whatever um, is intriguing when for yeah. the people that are actually in that like death is so close to them because of what they deal with every single day and they don't have the support mm-hmm. or that safety bubble in in a sense that mm-hmm. someone of a white community would feel. Right. And I think I want to differentiate too because I think there's like true crime fans mm-hmm. who are people like you and me that are just like into it no matter yeah. what. But then I think the thing that like – which, like, the true crime fan community knows about mm-hmm. more of these kind of cases. But the thing that I'm talking about is when it goes to the next level and becomes part of, like, the fabric of what's going yeah. on. Like, Ted Bundy has reached cult level. Everybody knows yeah. who that is. But, like, and I'm saying, like, Samuel Little should mm-hmm. be on that level, but yeah. he's not. So it's, like, it's that next step yeah. up of, like casual true crime mm-hmm. viewers or like casual news readers that I'm yeah. talking about mm-hmm. specifically. Um, I also think that um, there is like to the flip, like some people I'm sure are like excited by it, but then other people want like use it to uh, kind of like judge the mm. people in these situations and feel better about themselves. Well, I would never yeah. do that. I don't have to think about what my, you know, my last meal would be because I would never yeah. do that. I would never put myself in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that just sort of reaffirms, again, like reaffirms their yeah. safety. So I think like going and like hearing about these cases and researching these cases or reading the news stories and all this stuff is about whatever it comes down to for, I think, for white viewers or whatever we want to call them it's about reaffirming your safety and kind of like being shocked that someone could be so crazy Mm -hmm. to kill enough people you know yeah totally i don't know i've been thinking about that a lot and it's hard because it's so like you said it's just there's two sides there's 50 sides there's 100 sides to every situation like this and you know i think it's it goes back to you know how what your life experiences are and how you can um digest all of this and what it means to you and pertain how it pertains to you in your life is the Mm -hmm. same way that you would Mm -hmm. how you would consume that information as well you know yeah 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 yeah. wow yeah this uh (sighs) this was um 
It's, it's a, a lot, lot, and then it's also like, like there's. St- I didn't even mention. I couldn't mention yeah. every yeah. single one. It's, which I feel bad about because yeah, like well, and it's also should you, be you can't mention every single one, but there's also not a name for every single one, right. and that's the, you know, these women were so disposable to him in a way, even though he want he likes to think of himself as somebody who loved these women and and cherishes them. They're his angels or whatever he was saying. Like he treated them as just throwaways, like even not even not even taking the second yeah. to know what their last name is, even their first name at times. So, yeah, they're objects, they're collectibles. Yeah. He said he actually like Karis doing that oxygen mm-hmm. special interviewed him and he said to her that his victims were broke and they were homeless and they walked right into my spider web. Oh god. And that just basically affirms yeah everything that he knew exactly what he was doing. Wow. So with all that today Samuel Little is still in prison and he has diabetes and a heart condition and may not live to stand trial for all the murders that he confessed to. Um, yeah, there's also like a quote that I had found that I, I didn't know if you were, um, you had read, but I, I read a quote by the VICAP crime analysis. Her name is uh, Christy Palazziolo, Piazzolo, sorry if I said your name wrong, but she said, quote, for many years, Samuel Little believed he would not be caught because he thought no one was accounting for his victims. So and it's just it's crazy but like even though he's already in prison and he will likely die there the fbi still has which i'm so proud of actually is that they still find it very very important to seek justice for every victim regardless of whether we know their name or not um and to give closure to as many families as they possibly can yes and uh, because so many of his victims are unnamed, they released the drawings that he made of them. And in Ohio, it actually led to uh, identifying one of those unnamed victims and closing oh, that wow. case. Uh, the FBI is still seeking information. So if you know anything or if you have any sort of inkling, we'll post a link about who to contact and where to see these drawings. Um, if you know somebody or someone went missing. That resembles any of these you know, these photos, yeah. Th- right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and he... Samuel Little, he killed more people than Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy combined. And we need to remember his name, not because we want to glorify him in any way, but so that people like him don't happen again. Wow, uh, that's it for season one, Devin. I can't believe we've made it this far. It was so, so, well, for me, it was such a pleasure to do this with you. And um, I couldn't imagine a, a, a better partner for this, this project. I feel the same way. Um, and I'm so glad I get to do this with you. Um, 
we we both are very much looking forward to a little break but um i'll probably have a week and then i'll be like i want to do this again but um i know i know but thank you guys so so much for all the people who have shared our podcast on social media and who have subscribed and downloaded and people who text us every week saying you know mm-hmm. um how proud of us they are which is so crazy and and even the people that we don't even know that reach out and and tell us you know what a what a great podcast and what we're doing is so great and um it's a pleasure to do this for you guys and and for us this is very much a passion project, but it's something that we both mm-hmm. hold very dear um, and yes. love doing it together. And if you, we do love doing it together. If you have any ideas or cases that you want us to cover for next season, go ahead and message us on Instagram. We're at DNA underscore podcast, or you can email us at poddnacast at gmail.com. Yes. We are going to start gearing up for season two and would love your input and what sort of stories you would like us to yeah. cover for next and season. And it's, uh, as much as this is like the two of us doing it together, it's so, um, it's so satisfying to have people in the community, the true crime community or friends and family that want to be involved and send us cases. And um, mm-hmm. it's very much a community project in that way. And so anything mm-hmm. you guys have ideas or suggestions for cases would be amazing and we can't wait yeah we can't wait and look out uh for season two come summertime we'll be staying active on social media so be sure to still share with your friends help us get season one out there so that we can start season two strong and with a audience double the size (laughs) that's our goal look out for season two this summer This episode was written by Asia Hamilton and Devin Balsamo-Gillis, edited by Asia Hamilton, with music by Holly Amber Church. If you would like to see pictures and sources from this episode, please check us out on Instagram at DNA underscore podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. See See you next time. time.